0: It's Jared. Before we get to today's show, I have one quick announcement to make. I will be sitting down for a discussion about civic engagement and voter registration in LA high schools with LUC school board member, Scotch Merilson and the Secretary of State of California, Alex Padilla. It's gonna be a really great conversation that I hope can provide a lot of information about civic engagement and voter registration and how we can get young people engaged in the political process. If you're interested in this conversation, It'll be on May 12th at 2 p.m. on Scotch Merilson's Facebook live page. I'll drop the link of that in the description of the podcast below. If you kind of like what we do at Contested, this will be somewhat of a live version of that. So tune in for it. Now, here's the show. So one thing that's been really interesting for me as someone who's into public policy during the COVID-19 outbreak has been... The policies being implemented and the pushback to them, right? Obviously, we know about the protests, about opening up state home orders, which some people find to be repugnant, but this isn't really a conversation about that. To me, what's more interesting is the moral foundations that a lot of these actions are being made on. In times of crisis, we look to make quick action that we think everyone can agree upon to prevent the most negativity, whatever you think that means in the world. But what we're starting to see is that unlike America maybe a hundred years ago, a lot of us don't share the same moral philosophy. The rugged individualism that has grown throughout the twentieth century in America makes it seem as though we don't really care all that much about the communal well being, but instead about our own. Basically in other words, some of us are utilitarian and some of us are not. And that's a, a loaded philosophical word that I think is somewhat misunderstood. But on today's episode, I'm going to be sitting down with a good friend and my philosophy teacher, Albert Fuentes, to discuss what is utilitarianism and what does that mean in the era of COVID-19 public policy making? Because I'm assuming some of you have heard about the quote-unquote trolley problem. There's a train coming down at an unstoppable speed. And you can either pull a lever to kill one person and save five, or let it go and kill the five and save one, but your conscience is clean, or something along those lines. But that's just the very surface of utilitarianism, and I think truly understanding it can help us understand a lot of the policies and protests being held at this time. So if you're interested in any of that, stay tuned. Hey, Mr. Fuentes. How are you doing, Jared? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing excellent, actually. Nice, nice. So could you just give a brief description of who you are for some of the viewers who probably have not had your class?
1: No problem. My name is Albert Fuentes. I am a teacher in the Humanities uh, Cleveland Magnet. I teach 12th grade philosophy. I am a former student in the program. I graduated in the class of 2010, and I've been teaching there now five years. And so this will make the seventh year overall of teaching. Wow,
0: man, I remember like freshman year, you were just coming in new, but now time goes by. Anyway, (laughs) uh, so seeing that you are a philosophy teacher, I think your interest lies in probably epistemology more, but you seem to have a good grasp on a lot of things. And given that, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, the COVID-19 outbreak is asking a lot of moral questions in specific, either about the role of government or individual citizens' beliefs about that. We found it fitting to talk about utilitarianism. So could you explain what is utilitarianism and what are some basic principles of it?
1: Sure. And, you know, right before I launch into that, I do want to say I think it is a very timely conversation we're about to have about utilitarianism and morality in general. So I think we should frame this discussion probably in the current outbreak because it's not so theoretical anymore. A lot of the questions that are being posed about what's the right thing to do. So I guess let's start there utilitarianism is one of the most popular theories of ethics or morality, where basically utilitarianism, it's in the name. What is best is typically like the best course of action or what is moral or what is just or what is good is whatever causes the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest amount of people. Essentially, it's a very rational philosophy that attempts to almost calculate a moral action by weighing Mm. what its benefits are as opposed to what it takes to actually do it. In philosophical terms, we can couch it as hardcore consequentialism, where essentially what matters is the effects of the action done, not the intention. Mm. So the two most famous utilitarians are uh, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. And they themselves had a lot of key differences, but they did agree on that point that you can basically try and determine what is moral by seeing what is the greater good and what will provide happiness for the greater number of people now already you're probably encountering a few questions like okay well how are we defining happiness and how can that be measurable and utilitarianism is infamous for having a lot of problems with it like okay what if i derive a lot of happiness from torturing and killing people and it outweighs your happiness of being out like i just i really get a kick out of it then is it moral from a utilitarian point of view for me to go and kill people? You see, it's problems like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, happiness is not an objective thing. Happiness is different to different people. So living in a society, unless everyone agrees that X is happy, you're going to be right. in some trouble there.
1: That's right. And I'm not going to turn this into a conversation about Wittgenstein because that's not what this <laughs> podcast is about. But I will say that, yeah, you're right to look at the language. I mean, it, happiness is not a thing. It's a word. And the meaning is how it's used. That's all I'm going to say about Wittgenstein, I swear. <laughs> uh, okay so yeah so that's basically what utilitarianism is now maybe an easier way to understand it is also to talk about its antonym or, or an opposite philosophy so i guess some of the most popular opposing moral philosophies besides utilitarianism would be virtue theory which has been popular since aristotle or deontology which has a lot to do with duty and intention popularized by kant and so those have problems as well but Basically, I think one of the best debates in moral philosophy is deontology versus consequentialism, or in this case, utilitarianism, where Kant especially made the argument that what's moral is actually the intention in attempting to follow some kind of moral duty, some transcendent duty. And so for a utilitarian, if you could sacrifice one person to save 10 people, that is totally morally acceptable and in fact is morally required for you to sacrifice the one to save the many. Whereas deontology would place inherent worth on the individual and say, no, it is not right to sacrifice the life of one human for the many because you cannot measure human life. I kind of went on this crazy thing about if you are a rational being, then you deserve to be treated as, as an end in itself, not a means to an end. And that's just not utilitarian. Utilitarian would be like, okay, but is that really practical? Again, I'm kind of going all over the place, but let me give you a, an example of one of Kant's problems. Kant infamously claimed that lying was never morally permissible, for example. Hmm. It's just immoral to lie. And then there's all these problems. The classic one is, okay, it's you know, 1941, Nazis knock on your door, you're hiding Jews. They ask you, are you hiding Jews? Kant would be forced to say like, well, you can't lie. <laughs> but, but common sense would say, well, no, of course not. Lying would be the moral imperative. In that situation,
0: simply because the moral good of protecting people would outweigh any sort of white lie you might tell.
1: Exactly. That's right. So I'm sorry. So I kind of went on a little tangent there defining utilitarianism, but now we can actually try and apply it to today.
0: Yeah. So I think one thing that you hit on in specific is that utilitarians would sacrifice one person for 10 people, right? This is the classic trolley problem. There's a train coming down, and you want to pull the lever, and even though you kill one, you save more lives. And I think when you apply this on a much more grander and practical scale, we wouldn't shut down our society for one person, right? If one person was going to jump off a bridge, we wouldn't all of a sudden, you know, everyone stop everything and we'll all just try to care for this one individual. That's not practical. On the flip side, if everyone had guaranteed death from whatever, you know, you can say a pandemic or any other cause, nuclear holocaust, we would have to take action. Because if the majority, or if, you know, almost everyone is to die, then you have to alter your current way of life. But the main question that I think a lot of people face is, where is that line then? You know, is 10 people enough in a small community, or is it 50% plus one enough? So if Americans truly, I think, say they believe that they're going to try to help the majority of people, yet in our current situation, we see that's not really the case with people either protesting stay-at-home orders are saying this isn't deadly enough, or whatever sort of argument it comes, how do you morally draw a line to say, I'm utilitarian in this case, but not in this Mm -hmm. case?
1: I guess you would either have to admit that you don't believe in an objective moral truth and are a pragmatist, or you're a hypocrite. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I don't see a way of reconciling the two points of view. And you know, what you said, I think, was very excellently summarized by uh, Governor Cuomo of New York a few days ago, When he actually boiled down to what's happening right now to a moral question, he asked the hard question, which is, how much is a human life worth? That's Mm. the basic question, and that's the hard one. And this was Jeremy Bentham's huge problem. As soon as you start putting numbers, values, how do you calculate the value of happiness or, in this case, a human life? It's tough. Is it worth sacrificing? Oh, what are they projecting now? 200,000? Sure. 300,000? Is it worth sacrificing that many people knowing that you could, if you had, you know, uh, had the lockdown still, knowing you could have prevented their deaths, is it right to reopen the economy to improve the quality of life for the rest of us? And that's a very hard question. A hardcore utilitarian might argue that yes, it is moral. Because if the economy suffers, a lot of us will suffer. And, you know, when unemployment goes up, death rates go up. People yeah. can't afford to go to the doctor. There's no social nets in this country. People will suffer and people will die and people will get sick. For, not from COVID-19 maybe, but, you know, the quality of life will just... True, sure, they might so become much.
0: homeless or something like yep. that. And then a bunch of precipitating problems.
1: Yep. And then you could then make the very hard utilitarian argument that, yeah, it is worth sacrificing these people for the good of the, of the country and the economy. Now, I don't think that sits well with most of us, especially if you formulate it out loud, because I think if somebody were to actually take that position, which I believe many people, like key government officials do, like we're talking governors, senators, the White House seems to take this position, and no one has explicitly said it in those terms because to us it sounds wrong. I think there's a feeling where if you put a face to it and you know that, oh, this person is probably gonna die, because of this pandemic, then it creates an uneasy feeling. And I don't know, perhaps I'm speaking personally here, but I think there's something in humans where that just seems very wrong, I think, if you can feel that empathy. So I think that's a huge flaw of utilitarianism because the utilitarian approach, I think you could make a very strong argument that you should reopen the country and too bad for those 100, 200, 300,000 people.
0: That's the thing is when you compare lives to lives in something like the trolley problem, it's very simple right because the numeric values play themselves whatever you calculate a life as it's two of them versus one of them so it's a, it's an easy comparison but i think you touched on an important point which is one economic failure will lead directly to death in certain ways so you can to an extent make an argument about just which is going to cause more death a lockdown versus opening the economy But if it doesn't lead directly to death, to the numbers that would, you know, stoke some sort of position in people, then how do you weigh a little bit of harm or even substantial harm for millions of people against surefire death for hundreds of thousands of people? And this is kind of where I think you point out the logical extreme of utilitarianism isn't so clear as simply two people on a train versus one person.
1: The Trolley Dilemma is a really nice thought experiment. And it's a good way to kind of see how moral theories work in a lab, so to say. Mm-hmm. But it's never that simple in real life. And, you know, it's interesting that this this virus affects mostly, you know, older people. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a bias against, you know, like, oh, well, they're old. It's like, you know, they've kind of lived their lives. They, uh, <laughs> You know, we shouldn't sacrifice all of our happiness for, you know, this amount of lives. Now, the other really ugly thing I do want to talk about, though, is, okay, let's cut through a lot of what's happening. This virus is affecting certain parts of the country more severely than others, mostly due to population density and travel. So, of course, the coastal cities, the major cities, are being hit the hardest. And the lockdown is affecting people all over the world, though. And the economic recession is going to affect everyone. So I've really tried hard to put myself like in the shoes of somebody who lives in a more rural area. Now, if they live in a very sparsely populated area, are probably not in much danger of this pandemic, at least compared to someone you know, living in the city. And so from their point of view, I can kind of see that, okay, all these economic restrictions are killing them, and they're gonna cause a lot of havoc in their lives. And essentially, this pandemic is not gonna affect their community as severely. And so they're being asked to sacrifice for people they don't know, And also, frankly, don't like and don't agree (laughs) with. No, I mean, serious. You know, in this country, we've always had a terrible divide between urban, rural, suburban. And it's gotten to the point where, you know, they don't really care that much about our suffering because we didn't care much about theirs. In the 80s, the 90s, you know, due to globalization, we see total wage stagnation. Rural white America was kind of in a bad spot. And us in the coast were doing okay. and we didn't really pay much attention to them. And I think if we're honest, we do have all these horrible, terrible, political, tribal identities. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Okay, you know, Joe from Idaho, you know, who lives in a really sparsely populated neighborhood, he's being told he has to go on lockdown. He's gonna lose his job, you know, to protect people in in New York. How's he gonna feel about that? if that's the way it's framed, which I believe it is. This is really showing the divide in this country because this isn't like a 9-11 moment where everyone is coming together in a crisis. Like, it's everyone versus everyone.
0: I completely agree with you, but I think even that framing in itself now draws a line between two different scenarios, right? Mm -hmm. If we still can't quantify a human life versus an economic recession, then what does the magnitude of it really matter, right? Sure, in the rural areas, There might be less death and more economic recession proportional to, like, death per capita, if you want to use that. But at the same way, if a life trumps all else, does it really matter how many? Because in that case, like, yes, it's less than in New York, but it still is an issue that you're trying to assign that value in the same language that you're assigning value to dollars, So even though it's less, is it still right all of a sudden? New York, clearly you're like, okay, we have to lock it down. So many people are going to die. But if you were in a sparsely populated town of, you know, 10,000 and 1,000 people were going to die versus like widespread economic recession, does that change it now that the proportionality is different? You know, and I don't think maybe a utilitarian (laughs) philosophy can really answer
1: that. I don't think they can. I think that's a huge flaw. In fact, what I was going to say was this, I think morality... As much as we like to pretend that it's something that's very rational, it is not. I think the utilitarians, and frankly, that many of the deontologists are are incorrect, in that they think that they can rationally calculate morality. The truth is, I think morals are based on our feelings. And if you don't feel one way or the other, you're not going to make a moral judgment. That's David Hume now, if you recall. I think Hume is right. If there's no feeling, if there's no, no I mean, he used the word passion, but if you don't get that feeling of approval or disapproval, you're not going to want to make a moral decision. one we're another a moral judgment. So I mean, for example, if you hear ten thousand people die, I mean that's a statistic. Mm-hmm. That's not going to convince anybody. But once you start putting faces to it and you start making people empathize, feel for the people suffering, then you're going to get more support. That's why you're more likely to care about people in your tribe. If you get what I'm saying. And so I think trying to rationalize it is ultimately kind of a fruitless endeavor. Like you're never going to reach like, ah, there, that was the answer. It's it's not a math problem. And to approach it like one I think is pretty idiotic.
0: So if that's the case then, and we can't really boil down utilitarianism into quantifiable things, Mm -hmm. how do we move forward as a society and a government? And I know that's a very large question, but if you can't rationally weigh what you're doing and it's just everyone feeling for themselves, doesn't that lead down a path of like moral relativism and people just saying, yeah. oh, I feel this, so I'm going to do this, and the government can't tell me otherwise?
1: Yeah, so, and I've thought about this a lot, especially since I teach philosophy of language and postmodernism. I've thought about this a lot. How does a democracy function when it seems like people live in different realities?
0: And feel radically different things about the exact same issue.
1: Yeah, I think I've reached, well, you know, I'm still thinking about it, obviously, and I'm still reading and uh, and writing about it, but... I think I've kind of reached the conclusion that if we don't all have at least a common agreement of mm. morality and the function of a society and our role in it, we're kind of doomed towards <laughs> a schism. No, really. Like, yeah, It's uh, not funny, but it's, well, yeah. I mean, you laugh or you cry, but if our realities are just so different and nobody is willing to try to have these hard conversations of like, okay, let's determine why do you feel that way? Why do you believe that? if it becomes just a constant fight between like the left and the right or, or rural versus urban, it's not going to end well. And I don't think a democracy is possible without it, without a common basic understanding and, and a, frankly identity.
0: Yeah. So maybe if this pandemic shows us anything, it's that democracy might be in trouble if we can't even agree on a, a crisis like this.
1: Right. Exactly. But, I, imagine that we can't even agree that this is uh this is a, 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 a problem. Important... Yeah. 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 We can't even agree on that. Um. <laughs>
0: Anything else you'd like to add?
1: What you're asking me is very difficult, and I, not, not like I have the answers, but I think if you really wanted to make a difference, you're going to have to understand that what convinces people is not cold logic. What convinces people is appeals to emotion, done in a clever way. Creative descriptions is what uh, the philosopher Richard Rorty would have used. Mm. And you know, the idea being that you got to get people to try and imagine what it's like to be someone else to hear their stories and to really try to empathize. Because if you can't do that, then there's no point. You're not gonna care if other people die. And in a world where we're becoming increasingly interconnected, both as Americans and as global citizens, that's gonna become very important because the more we see it as us versus them, which I really believe is an ugly inbuilt human trait. I think humans by nature are altruistic, But only to the yes, but only to people we considered in our tribe, Hmm. so like an in group
0: out group type mentality.
1: I tend to think that's a natural tendency Hmm. because you see that in every human culture that's ever existed. And, And I think there's don't get me wrong, I think we're not just animals, we can combat this using again our language. But I think we have to admit that there are these inherent problems where I think humans are altruistic and humans are good, I guess, for lack of a better word, by nature but only to those that we also consider to be fully human, Hmm. like us.
0: (laughs) Doesn't the danger, though, of, let's say, the creative descriptions lead democracy down to a path of salesmen and, you know, I mean, I guess you could argue already there with, like, the way politics is, but doesn't it lead down the path of who can just persuasively speak being the best, not
1: the person who actually can do anything? Correct. And that's the truth. <laughs> so it, 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 No, really. I mean, no. I, and I thought about this too. I talked about it with my, my old philosophy teacher, Mr. Lynn, you know, cause I, I told him, I asked him kind of a similar question. Just asked me like, well, if you don't really believe in like hard objective moral facts, then how do you you know proceed? Doesn't that open up the Pandora's box to all sorts of horrible rhetoric? And, and, yeah. and, and he just shrugged and looked at me and said, yeah, where do you think we live? <laughs> what do you think is happening? How, how do you explain all that? think it's too late to argue about that hypothetical that that's exactly the situation that we're in and when you look at world uh, leaders throughout history that have convinced a group of people to do something incredibly horrible and stupid it's because they were more convincing in their language and so i think if you really want to fight it you need to be aware of that and combat it yourself that's all yeah
0: so uh if the creative descriptions end up ruling us and utilitarianism fails i guess we'll just have to see where we end up mr fuentes thank you so much for coming on
1: Oh, of course, thank you for having me. I always appreciate a good philosophical discussion.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please visit our website at contestedpolitics.com and subscribe on whatever podcast listening platform you're hearing this episode on, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I want to extend a big thank you to Albert Fuentes for coming on and, as always, enlightening us on some philosophical topic. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Wednesday, May 12th, will be my sit-down with LUC School Board Member Schmerelson and Secretary of State Padilla to discuss high school civic engagement and voting registration. So think of that as almost a bonus episode to look forward to. But until then, thank you for helping us understand politics together.